0: This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Outsiders, a new novel by former Navy pilot W.C. Collier. Outsiders is a fast-paced military thriller full of murder, mystery, cover-ups, cutting-edge technology, and even a hint of the supernatural. Christopher S. DeStaffney writes, If you're a fan of science fiction, I'd call this one a must-read. The author's detailed knowledge of all things military provides a solid foundation for a story that accelerates as you go. So again, the book is called Outsiders by W.C. Collier, and you can learn more over at WCCollier.com. All right, so now let's get to our show.
1: Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David
0: Barr Kirtley. Hello. Hello. And welcome to episode 512 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Stephen Marsh. He's a columnist for Esquire magazine, and his writing has also appeared in The Atlantic, The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. And in this interview, we'll be discussing his werewolf novel, The Hunger of the Wolf, and his nonfiction book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. And today's show is brought to you by the new novel, Outsiders, by W.C. Collier. Collier is a former Navy pilot with a computer science background who wrote Outsiders while deployed to Somalia with a spec ops unit. And here's a description of the book. It says, A special forces unit on what should have been an uncontested extraction op is nearly wiped out in an ambush, only to be rescued at the last moment by an unseen benefactor. Meanwhile, half a world away, A small team of graduate students is experimenting with a new method for creating AI, which uses a tiny process running on thousands of different computers to solve problems. It's technical work, esoteric, exactly the kind of thing that excites Melody Ritter, one of the students on the team. But when the team begins large-scale experiments, they discover that such an AI already exists, only vastly more sophisticated and more subtle, and which has already recruited every internet-connected device in the world to some unknown ends. Melody finds herself caught up in a web of intrigue and murder, fighting to unmask the mysterious forces drawing the world toward Armageddon. Soon she discovers something in herself she never imagined, a willingness to sacrifice almost anything to fight for truth and freedom. So again, the book is called Outsiders by W.C. Collier, and you can learn more over at wccollier.com. And if you want to get the word out about your own book, movie, event, or product on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy... You can learn more about that over at geeksguideshow.com slash ads. And now here's our interview with Stephen Marsh. All right, so we're here with Stephen Marsh. Welcome to the show.
1: Pleasure to be here. Okay,
2: so let's start off with your novel, The Hunger of the Wolf. So how'd that book come about?
1: Uh, boy, how did it come about? I mean, I, it was one of those things where I was at home, and I just had a complete vision of a plot in about uh 15 seconds like it was it was like a dream um and it, and then it became a process of writing out that dream so it, that one happened you know some books happen over years and some books happen really fast and that one happened basically instantaneously it's like i had the whole plot and all the characters and everything in it within 30 seconds. And the rest was the process of writing it out and, and, um, and, and finding how it was supposed to work. But yeah, it came, it came really fast that book.
2: That's amazing. Cause there's a lot of plot and there's a lot of characters in the book. I, mean, I know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and it, but it came as a complete, like it, like I knew everything that was going to be in the book within 30 seconds. I mean, it, it really was just like snap and there it is. And then just getting it, it written Um, was the only problem. Yeah. I don't know what it was. I mean, I had taken, uh, I had taken a marijuana edible. Maybe that was it. (laughs) Like I have often thought like maybe that was like, maybe that was it, but it it did just come just that fast.
2: I I guess I'll just explain. So the plot basically is that there's a, a Canadian journalist living in New York and growing up his neighbors in this sort of undeveloped, mostly undeveloped region of Alberta, were this billionaire yeah. family that his family sort of served as caretakers for their like vacation house and so as the story opens one of the sort of the the son of this fa- of this billionaire family has died under mysterious circumstances and so the the journalist investigates his death and it sort of unravels this whole story multi-generational story of this family and how they became billionaires so yeah
1: it's a lot going and on and then it- and then it also involves werewolves. I mean, it's basically succession with werewolves <laughs> is how I describe it. I mean, it was like – and it was about trying to understand a specific kind of Canadian um, wasp mentality and a certain kind of Canadian com- – a uniquely Canadian combination of highly urbanized – even globalized people who are also like absolutely um obsessed with wilderness and very close to wilderness and what the wilderness in them means really um, and that 's why the the werewolf stuff is less kind of genre stuff than it is try a, a metaphor for trying to get at what it like what it means to live next to these incredibly wild places like like in northern Alberta where i you know where I grew up like you can you, you they're unnamed lakes, right? Like there are there are places there are, there are lakes that are not they're just numbers on a map because no one's bothered to name them, and there are places that are truly wild, like in the sense that you know no one is really in them, Uh and and those distances go on forever, like hundreds and hundreds of kilometers. So uh, it was about trying to get that that kind of experience of wildness and urbanity at the same time.
2: Yeah, I mean it's definitely a a sort of not a genre werewolf book. I was. Um, I don't think there's anyone gets attacked or killed by a werewolf in the entire book. Unless I'm there's one something.
1: girl, one girl, okay. one girl who gets attacked, but it's in a it's in a memo. It's not like it's not for it's not dra- dramatized. Like it's it's not uh, it's not part- well you know I mean it, the, I think part of the book is that the wilderness is actually the best part of us and that the and that the, the wildness is in fact you know more gentle than the urban side of us um, and that 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 the the wolves are of course far less cruel than human beings so you know that was that was definitely a part of the of the metaphor as well.
2: Did you have any sort of apprehension about writing a werewolf book? Because I was, I was talking to my girlfriend about it and I was saying, you know, mm-hmm. I, I I think there might be a concern that it's sort of too werewolfy for the lit crowd and not werewolfy enough for the <laughs> Stephen King and Rice work, right?
1: <laughs> That's probably what happened. But it, like, as I said, I got it. I had it as a dream and it, like I really couldn't escape from it. Um, you know, I did. I, I, I do feel like the, the metaphor, like a, a werewolf is not like vampires were invented in the 19th century werewolves go back to the epic of Gilgamesh like they are they're they're werewolves are as old as storytelling um and so i i felt a little more uh comfortable with that like it's not it's not genre like it's you know there are medieval french cases of people being tried as werewolves um and so it it is a very kind of and I think there's reasons for that. It's very tied into a kind of primitive reaction that we have to nature and our own bestial nature. Um, that So the, I, I felt, um, you know, I was probably playing more to the lit crowd, although I wanted both of them and got, as you say, neither.
2: <laughs> I mean, were you interested in werewolves prior to getting this idea or was it a thing where you got the idea and you're like, okay, I guess I better read up on the history of werewolves? Well,
1: I, I Well, I definitely... I've seen wolves in the wild in Alberta and they're really unforgettable. I mean, even, even for, um, even for, you know, having seen lions in Africa and having seen grizzly bears and so on, there is something really, really powerful about seeing a wolf. Um, they are like, you know, they, they're, as I say in the book at one point, they're not just wild, they consciously rejected civilization, right? Like they're there's something sort of like they, they, they that they, that they, don't want to be people. Um, and, and that the, and there's something, uh, you know, a, a particular kind of ferocity to them. So I was always obsessed with wolves. Um, the werewolf stuff, you know, I'd seen it a bit when I, uh, I, I did some work on um in my phd which was on shakespeare where i did some work on you know various magical transformations in that period and so i knew i knew some of the history of werewolves but for the book i did go really into it and it does it, it it's fascinating because it really does go back all the way through written time and also it's in every culture so there are like you know versions of werewolves in Japan and there are versions of werewolves in indigenous Canadian culture and there are visions of werewolves in Africa and like you know or not they don't turn into wolves but they turn into dogs and so on and so like the, it, it is this kind of general story that's out there and, and and fits in with something really general to the human condition that i think is um pretty pretty powerful
2: I mean, who, like, would you say there were any particular literary influences on this book? Like, if you're describing it to someone, is there anything you can compare it to that you're like, oh, it's because it's pretty, I would have a hard time saying what this is similar to.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was like, I, 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 I think the the person I thought about a lot was, was Gatsby, obviously. Um, and like, you know, it, it's also a portrait of like what New York does to people, what money does to people, um, like what, what what it means to be super rich what what happens to people when money becomes the defining uh value of their lives which um you know i think is something that we are our market fundamentalism is becoming a real issue but um yeah i mean you know i think it was i think it was kind of gatsby and then also you know a bit of magic realism like you know i don't think it was really um you know it it wasn't uh, explicitly in that genre. But of course, you know, like it, it, somebody just turning into a wolf and having it dealt with very matter of factly, um, you know, that was, that, that was certainly an element that I wanted to play with. Right. Where it's like, you know, how, how far can you go just d- in, in terms of pushing people's, uh, capacity to believe things when you describe things very flatly? Um, that, that's, and, and you know, that, so that's like, Garcia Marquez and Borges and people like that. I was I was definitely thinking about that, but I also wanted a kind of a smooth smoother portrait of American greed, really. And like and, and it's and it's consumption of people. I mean, that's the hunger, right, of the title, for sure.
2: I mean, were you reacting I mean, I, I couldn't help but think of like The Wolf of Wall Street and stuff like that was that in your mind yeah. at all?
1: No, I mean, that came out just like, well, after, I, I mean, I think it was after my book or maybe it was like a few months before my book came out or something like that. I mean, you know, that's a, that's a metaphor that's used all the time. In this case, it was just, it just happens to be literal, but of course, you know, um, the, the people who make money in this book, like they're not, uh, they don't make it through, um, being assholes, right. Or being, or being like vicious or cruel. They make their money through incredible, like, like the, that's the, the joke of it. There's nothing wrong with their fortune. Like they make it, they make it from, you know, from just being, you know, scaling these businesses very, at very high levels. So, you know, that, uh, their violence is somewhere else, right? Like I didn't, it, it was, they were they're not kind of, um, uh, bad guys you know like they're like that that's kind of the they're not they're not uh you know they they're not criminals like behind every fortune there's a great crime in this case there really isn't right and and so that's another thing i wanted to deal with that they like this this fortune was built completely legitimately and so and, and so even though it, and that may, that doesn't mean that the fortune is any less absurd it absolutely is absurd but it's but it's definitely legitimate
2: i mean so so the book it, it seems to really have a lot of insight into the the lives and Mental states of, of of the super super rich, and yeah. is that something that in your journalism that you've you've sort of come across those people, or did you watch a lot of lifestyles of the rich and famous, or like where did
1: that that no, from? I interviewed, I interviewed a lot of people. Um, I interviewed like, obviously it's fictional and it's not, I mean, they're werewolves, so it's not, <laughs> it, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not in any way a Romana Clay or anything like that. But I certainly, well, I, I knew some of through, you know, through friends and, um, I have known ultra rich people. Um, but you know, it was mostly interviewing people and, um, uh, and, and finding out about what happens. Cause it's not, it's not really the ultra rich per se, which has become a kind of broader group right now. This was really about like one of the t- 10 richest families in the world in the 90s where, you know, a billion dollars actually meant quite a bit, right? Where there were, you know, there were only 10, I, I think it was 10 or 15 billionaires in, in, in 1992. So to be, to have access to that much, uh, money was was transformative uh in a way that um that I found very fascinating and yeah it took it took a lot of interviewing to figure it out um you know and the other thing about doing that interviewing is that you 're always dealing with envy and you 're dealing with contempt like money is incredibly skewing of perspective um and and like and when people know that other people are richer than them so it 's actually very hard to pick the pieces up of what's true and what's not. Uh, but yeah, like I, 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 just interviewed a lot of people and I, and tried to, you know, triangulate what, where, where the reality lay.
2: It's funny when you say that it's about werewolves. So it's obviously fiction because there's a part in the book where the, the main character, he, is interviewing this, you know, the, the, this member of the billionaire werewolf family. And then mm-hmm. he's eventually sort of legally stopped from publishing his article and one of his right. friends suggests oh maybe you should just write it as a novel. So I was right. wondering if you were trying to tell us something about where No, I mean I, from?
1: I well I had I I I don't find the um like I actually don't find rich people in themselves fascinating. Like I'm not one of those people who would read plutocrats or, you know, or the latest adventures of Elon Musk or whatever, like with a great deal of fascination, like I I find them, they tend to get pretty cliched pretty, pretty quickly. Um, what I, what I find, like, you know, you could write a, uh, uh, an Elon Musk novel, no problem. It, it's just, would it really, would it really register? Like, would it, would it, would it be weirder than reality? Um, you know, I want to, I was trying to capture something about money and wilderness. Right. And, and like, and being stuck between these two realities and trying to live in these two realities. And also, you know, something about being a man, right. Like about having to deal with the worlds of money, but also having this beast inside you and what, and what that means, uh, in practical terms of trying to find love in the world and find recognition in the world. And so, um, you know like the the money would definitely highlighted it, but you know it, it never it was never to me like I'm going to write a Romana Clay about the really rich right like like the way succession is where they get all the all the details of like what of of the of the yacht like and who runs the yacht i mean i I knew all that stuff, but it, i I never found that stuff as interesting as other people
2: is the i mean the the jamie Cabot character the the Canadian journalist he seems to have a lot of mm-hmm. autobiographical. Elements in common? Is it, how, how similar or different is he from, from you?
1: He's pretty different from me. I mean, I left New York. Um, he, uh, like I did grow up in Alberta and that, to me, it is a novel about Alberta, uh, in, in large part. Um, which, you know, I don't think has ever really been written about adequately. Um, like I don't, like it's a, it's a kind of a place where I don't, I don't think the true spirit of that place has been captured in literary terms to me. Um, but, you know, other than that, like, not, like, I didn't, um, uh, sleep with a, a, a rich friend's wife and then, you know, and then try and weasel my way into New York society that way. You know, I live in Toronto mm-hmm. with two kids and I'm not a, I'm not married to a billionaire at all. So, um, you know, like there are certain similar elements, uh, but, but, but not, not many really.
2: Well, how about in just in terms of the journalistic career? Is that because you're like submitting articles to Esquire and stuff like that?
1: I guess so. Yeah. I mean, he was a journalist and I wanted to get that world. But really, that's a way of just getting, um, you know, getting getting a way into like that. One of the the beautiful thing about being a journalist is like you get to be a, a snoop. Right. And you get to and it's all justified. You get to go and be as nosy as you want and try and figure things out for yourself um and, and you get to call up anyone you want and say hey can you answer these questions for me um that, that's a i actually don't know why there aren't more journalists in novels it's such a convenient kind of character to have right like you get to you get to go places and talk to people and see things just because that's who you are right so um yeah like i guess that would be a similarity although he he was kind jamie cabot was bit different than, at that point i was really not doing many features or investigative work i was more of a columnist so like it would be it, i would, we would be quite different at the, at the time i wrote the novel
2: which you just said, it makes me think of something i heard once about the detective novel or like raymond chandler or something but that the the private eye is the perfect character to exactly. explore a, a world of you know because the, the private eye interacts with everything everyone from the thugs on the streets to the the mayor and the the super rich in their mansions and everything but i guess a journalist is
1: kind of the same way if you're i i totally believe a good journalist is like a good journalist is absolutely somebody who can walk into a dive bar and feel at home and talk and get stories out of people and then go and talk to the mayor at the same time that is that is that is definitely something that 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 i love about journalism is just the breadth of human experience that you get to interact with and that you know it is your job on all these fronts to to talk to all of them right so and to understand where they're coming from so yeah i i i totally think there should be more journalist based characters um it's just so it's just so useful
2: yeah there's a the part in the book where where Jamie says all celebrity interviews end in disappointment what do you yeah, what do you think about that's that true.
1: Well, I mean, I did write one of the most derided celebrity interview pieces of all time, where I still get calls. I get calls occasionally from journalism school, where they're like, "We're doing a thing on pieces that were disasters. Could you talk to us about your interview with Megan Fox?" Right, and uh and I'm like, "Well, sure. I mean, although I don't think it was a disaster, I actually am quite fond of that piece. But I actually, I actually um, don't know.
2: Th- I actually, I missed this in my well, research. Was, so could you? It, so was a,
1: it. it was a it was a Gawker style scandal in the I I forget 2013 or 2014 I mean it's all ancient history now but you know I did this Megan Fox profile for Esquire that um, you know blew up and, and caused a, there was a lot of Slate articles about how how bad it was. And, and so, um, I, I was going around, you know, interviewing celebrities and doing that whole, uh, thing for Esquire. So I did have that perspective and that of course is a very strange world, right? And a very, um, and and, it has a certain otherness to it that is hard to escape. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, celebrity and money are, are kind of twins of each other, right? They're, they're, there uh, you know extreme celebrity and extreme money are uh are both kind of like power that is really beyond what anyone should reasonably have um and so the, you know t- in the book they're of course they're kind of twins those two things
2: like like do you feel i don't know like i said i don't, don't know anything about this megan fox interview but did, yeah. do you feel that you made any kind of error of judgment or was it just oh no it was kind of i think it's great that,
1: i, I yeah. think it's great but it was you know it was one of the it was one of those twitter pylons Right. Like where it just kind of feeds, up. it was one of the early ones, really. And it kind of, it, it fed on itself and, and, and uh, kind of spun out of control. But it, you know, it was, uh, but it, I mean, not that there was any fallout for me. It was all, it was all fine. It, it's just, um, you know, that, that particular brand of celebrity journalism, I definitely had sort of, uh, strong, strong encounters with. Right. Like it was it was definitely something that I that I saw and that I, and that I where I, I felt um, th- th- that it was a str- it was a strange world that perhaps I did not fit in particularly well.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, I you know, obviously I've interviewed a lot of celebrities for for this podcast, but we're most I'm mostly right. talking to them about their books. So it tends not to right. involve that much drama. But I mean, the biggest problem I have is just often talking to people who don't, you know, they've talked about this book 500 times and they don't really want to talk about it for a 500 first right. and I have to kind of overcome their apathy, you know?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, and I feel it from my side, right? Like I've done like 500 interviews on the next civil war now, but it's funny because I think it's so current. I know, like, I feel like I ha I, I want to talk about it more because it, you know, things are changing in it so much, but yeah, I mean, I, I can see why that happens. You know, like when you've done four hours of Zoom conversations in a day, at the end of it, it's natural to feel exhausted by it.
2: Yeah, I feel like often, you know, when I start talking to someone, often they're not that into it, and they kind of talk to me like I'm an idiot a lot of the times. And, right. And like once, once it becomes clear that I actually have read the book and I have thought about it and I have maybe some different a different angle on it or something, then then people usually like about twenty minutes into the interview, they they, they really warm up and. And we start having more of a real conversation.
1: Yeah. It's a, I, I love interviewing people. I find it, I, I find it I, like it's not something I was born in. It's not something that comes naturally to me, but you know, it's like I, I find that active listening is seriously underrated as a human activity. Like to be able to do that and to know, and, and you get a lot out of that when you learn how to you know, how to warm people up, like how to how to get them to talk about what they want to talk about. I find that's something that that's another thing about being a journalist that I really love is like that, you know, when you like that process of active listening is inherently humanizing, right? Like it's inherently an act of empathy. And I think that's, I think that's, um, that's something that's really good thing to have in your life, I find. Do you?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I I love to. I mean, I've been doing this podcast for Eleven right. years or something. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have done five hundred episodes if I didn't absolutely love it. Um, right. Yeah. But I. I did. I guess in the in the beginning, I sort of thought like, oh, I'll interview all my favorite authors, and then we'll all be friends and all hanging out, and and that's <laughs> right. not really how it works.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. Of course not. No, no, no. There's a whole industry here, right? Like it's a whole. It's a whole. Th- it's a whole scene, really.
2: So, did you do interviews for *Hunger of the Wolf*? Did um. Did people have people interviewed you about that?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When the book came out, but it's now, I mean, when did it come out? 2015? So it's like, yeah, I mean, I haven't talked about it in a long time, but when it came out, yeah, yeah, I did the full, I did the full, you know, all the festivals and all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, like it's, um, it, it, like it was a, it was a, it was an interesting book. Like it, it, it definitely had, uh, it definitely had some audience, but it was, um, I felt it was very personal book for me. Like it was something that it was really about Alberta, my home, which like, it's not, it's not, it's one of those things where it's like, you're not writing about Paris, you're writing about a place that people really don't know about. And so you want to capture what is what is powerful in that place and and why you love, you know, why you love it and why it has this power over you. So, you know, to me, that was that was. And, and of course, as I said, it was like a dream that came very quickly. And I, I felt kind of beholden to that dream.
2: I mean, what what was the response to the book like? Like, what did you hear from from people who
1: read it? Jeez, well, I, I got, it's hard for me to remember now. It's been so many books in between. <laughs> it was, I, I mean, there was, um, there was good, there was a good reaction to it. I mean, I definitely got a lot of notes from it and I got, um, I got a lot of, uh, messages from, uh, French can. Ch- I still get occasional letters about it from, from people who are reading it. So that's nice. But, um, like like honestly, it was so long ago I can't really remember. I mean, it was it was a bestseller here in Canada, um, and there was and there was a there was a kind of large response to it here, um, and then there was a sort of there was a, a a reaction of some kind in America. How large or not, I couldn't re- couldn't really say.
2: I mean, because I thought it was I thought it was terrific. I mean, I wasn't real honestly planning to read the whole thing. You know, I you know I I read. The next civil war. And then I saw that you all had a mm. werewolf book. And I was like, okay, well, this is a fantasy and science fiction podcast. I got to at least take a look at the werewolf right. book. And yeah, you know, I read-
1: did you think of it from a fantasy point of view? Like it was, it's not quite fantasy. Like it was, it, it got translated by a bunch of professors who were fantasy presses, but I was never sure that that was the right approach because it's not necessarily a genre book.
2: Well, I mean, that like I read a lot of fantasy, and and there, there's a, a, a right. huge range in terms of you right. know, how how much like Stephen King it is versus how much like Gabriel Garcia Marquez it is, or or so on. So, I mean, right. I've, I've I've read a lot of stuff that was published as fantasy that had a similar, you know, focus on the on the real on the real worlds where the fantasy elements are just sort of a backdrop. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that wasn't too out. Outside of what we would, would often talk about on this show. It was just that I just thought it was really well done. I mean, um I thought oh, the language you. was really beautiful and it just it just pulled me through. Like I I read the first chapter and I was just like, okay, I gotta read this whole book. There's no way I'm gonna not finish this. So uh, Right. Yeah, I just That's, I just really yeah.
1: loved it. Thank you. That's great. I'm very, very pleased. Thank you so much. That's a wonderful thing to say.
2: Yeah. Um, and so I guess we should move on now to the, the next Civil War. Uh, so I'm glad sure. you're not sick of talking
1: about it yet. Which is but, also kind of, I guess, a, fan, a form of fantasy, right? Like, it, in a sense, it, is a, it, is a, it fits into that genre as well. It's interesting. But yeah, I, I never really thought of it that way, but it probably is, right?
2: Well, I mean, that's why we're talking about it on this podcast, yes, because right. it is sort yeah. of a, you know, a you know, dystopian, post-apocalyptic sort of book. I mean, it's... right. Yeah, sort of nominally nonfiction. But I mean, actually, it's written in sort of large, large sections of it are written in this very novelistic, fictional sort of way.
1: Right? Yeah. No, I thought of it at the time as dystopian uh, realism, right? Like it was like, you know, there's all these dystopian novels out there. It's like, well, let me just describe to you the reality. Like what's like, the, like you don't need to make stuff up. Like I'll just show, like I'll get the best available models and show you what they look like, and that's that. Like that's enough to be going on with, you know, in the dystopian realm. That was my. That was sort of one of the premises of the book for sure.
2: Yeah, so I'll just explain for for listeners. So like like for example, there's a couple scenarios that you sketch out in the book. So one is you know uh, a small town sheriff defies the federal government and refuses to shut down this bridge that's been you know, shut down for environmental or um, logistical reasons. There's um, a, a sort of a, a, an alienated loner who plots to assassinate the president. Um, and then there's there's a like a radio producer who uh, has to escape from uh, New York City after it's basically destroyed by a, a superstorm. Um So there are these sort of like disaster novel type scenarios that you sketch out in the book.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, well, what I did was I took like the the um, the first scenario of a of a small town sheriff and the military, you know, basically uh, like him taking over town and declaring secession from the United States and the military reaction to that. Like I interviewed the colonel who was responsible for drawing up full scale operations in the homeland, as they call it, like what a military reaction would be like and essentially just wrote that down. Right. And then put it, and then put it in some kind of meaningful, meaningful context where it works on a narrative level. Um, but without straying from his ideas at all. Right. Like without saying more or saying less than, um, than he told me. Right. And so, and everything in the book is like that. Like the fall of New York, which is about what happens when a hurricane, uh, hits New York. Like, you know, the modeling on that is as good as any model in the world. Right. Like they know to the street what will happen when a, when a big hurricane hits new york so i just i just put that down and i was i really explicitly based it on um the day after which was originally a piece of fiction written for uh congress about what a nuclear attack in lawrence kansas would look like and um and i um like and then that got turned into a mini series, or actually, I think it was a TV movie, technically, which was the most watched television show in the world at that time, and caused Reagan to reevaluate the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Treaty, and actually had big political impacts. So I, 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 I was basically doing what they did in the day after, just for American politics.
2: Yeah, and you say in the book you call it arguably the most influential piece of fiction in history. So, yeah. as a science fiction fan, I kind of like that that idea that the sort of sci fi scenario could, could have that kind of impact on, on the real but
1: world. But sci fi always has these impacts. I mean, think about the tech that's. De- I mean, I often wonder if, like, you know, like part of. I don't really. It's not like I real, really feel bad about this, but I did sort of feel like, you know, as just. I, I wrote this dystopian book, but the book we probably need is a utopian tech book where it's just like, here are some beautiful things that can, technology can do because. We keep building – we keep imagining these tech dystopias and then, they, and then they become reality, right? Then they become enacted. Like, um, you know, I, I think the, the impact on science fiction on technology that's actually developed is just immense, you know. I think a hugely underrated f- force.
2: Yeah, I mean there is this whole movement now called solar punk. I mean there's a couple of different names yeah. for it, but, but people trying to write actual optimistic science fiction.
1: Yeah, I love that idea. Maybe that's what I'll do next. Maybe that's the <laughs> maybe that's the next thing I'll do, a solar punk uh novel or something like that. Because I I mean I, I couldn't agree more with the with that spirit. Like that's a that's a really good idea.
2: I mean but the thing about this book is that it it mm-hmm. seem you seem very, very sure that this scenario is mm-hmm. you know, that, that basically that the force is in play, you know, that the environment mm-hmm. is gonna keep getting worse, the you know you know, the natural environment is going to keep getting worse. The economic divides are going to keep getting worse. And the political divisions are going to keep getting worse. Like, what's really going to change yeah. to make those better? So, isn't it just inevitable that there's going to be violence sooner or later?
1: Well, I, like, I don't think anything is inevitable. Um, and at least of all, when it comes to America, which is the great country of reinvention and the great, and, and, you know, is a country of enormous changes, like, uh, and, and where, and where things actually can come out of left field. But like what I feel con, I don't feel confident of the outcomes at all. Like I think those are, you know, those are imagined scenarios, but I do feel very confident in the models, right? And well, what I do feel is like I have the best ones and I can specifically identify their, their strengths and weaknesses. So, you know, like the IMF model that I dealt with, like, you know, it's the best available economic model, but, you know, economic models are not worth that much. Like they, they don't have a, a great deal of predictive capacity. Like they're just not, like no one would have imagined that there'd be a plague. Unemployment would spike, but the stock market would go up. Like you could never, there would you would never find an economist who would have predicted that happening. Um, you, you know the, but other models like the environmental models are really solid, right? Like it has it has an, an incredible track. I mean, it's more than a track record. Like it is, it's it's very very it's been very very accurate for a very very long time. And similarly, the demographic models are also pretty um, pretty hard to defy. Like, uh, like, like by 2040, 50% of the United States will control 85% of the Senate. Like that's, that's now that's, that's if things keep going on the way they're going, but certainly no one is doing anything to stop them. So those realities are, um, those are, those are to me are like, those trends are very, very clear. And, you know, they, they definitely need to be acknowledged and dealt with. Um, so, like, the, the chances of violence I put at about 67%. That's about, that's where the expert opinion is. And it's also happens to be where a popular opinion thinks America is about two-thirds of the way to widespread political violence. Um, but that, that's, those are odds, right? Like, those are, that, that's, it's not like it's going to happen. It's just, that's, that's what the chances are of the, of this happening. So, you know, I think not like one of the things I really wanted to do in the book was not exaggerate at all. Like never, like I'm not taking this, this book is not the worst case scenario at all. It is very much like these are the, these are the, these are the best uh, evidence that we have about where things are going. And let's look at that and, and, and just be really clear about its limitations, but also its strengths. Right. And like and, and and because there's a lot to be scared of in those in those models. You don't need to exaggerate anything. It's perfectly terrifying enough.
2: Well, because well, I was I mean, one thing I was actually a little surprised in the book is that you don't really talk about the possibility of organized American military units fighting each other. You know, like if.
1: Yeah, you know, they, no, I, I don't imagine that as a likely scenario. Symmetrical warfare between uh, like I I mean, I didn't I didn't even. None of the experts I talked to even brought it up. I think it, that's, that's hugely unlikely. Um, like the, the war that I'm afraid of is asymmetrical warfare. It's, uh, which is not to say not trained units, like trained cadres, but like they're, they're not, they're not organized by U.S. military forces. Well, right? c- like Could you just,
2: could you just reassure me then? Cause, cause like if, if one, you know, if there's a, in the next presidential election, if one candidate says, I want it and the other candidate says, no, I want it. Is it not possible yeah. some generals might go with one, and some generals might go with the other? Like, is, or is that that's just not a realistic scenario?
1: That's not that's not realistic because it's not the the, the U.S. military command is built built very clearly around a chain of command that is t- pr- totally tied into the U.S. Constitution. Now. If that if, – well, you know, frankly, from my point of view, when that breaks down, like that does not seem to me like um, it's going to survive the next decade, um, if I'm being honest. Um, the military will make a choice as a unit, and and, and and someone will be in control of the U.S. military, and generals will leave and generals will go, but they won't take any forces with them, right? Um, what you will have is you will have um, – You know, paramilitary units who do not feel like the government is legitimate government and that they're and that they are, you know, they are freedom fighters and they are um, outside of this is what tends to happen in civil war. Like, it's not like the military breaks into two sides like in the first civil war it's like you have the military and then you have a lot of people outside the military who do not regard the military as legitimate and take violence into their own hands so the the war would be between forces of order and forces of chaos it wouldn't be between you know uh you know se- symmetrical armies with like lines of engagement and ch- and chains of and and logistical chains like it, w- it it's between insurgencies and counterinsurgencies. And, you know, as American, you know, now has learned over 70 years, um, it really doesn't matter. Like there is no good counterinsurgency strategy. Like there, there, one does not, there is no effective way to engage in counterinsurgency. And that tends to spiral out of control very quickly. So I mean, to assuage your, like, I'm assuaging part of your fear. Like, I don't think there will be mass battles between US military units, but, um, but that's not, uh, that's not of no comfort to me.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, the, the, the way that I would be optimistic, I, I mean, and I, you know, I would not have expected like the January 6th riot and stuff like that. So, um, you know, my right. optimism has already sort of been uh, punctured, but the the way I I've always thought of it because you say in the book um, that no society has ever had levels of inequality like the U S currently has and it not right. leading to war and revolution and chaos and stuff yeah but but the the other side of that would be like, well there's I don't think there's ever been a country where the poor were as well off you know that's like, true too I mean, yeah like, like like you know compared to ancient Rome or, or anything Absolutely. in history where the peasants are literally starving, you know, and, and yeah. I always felt like as long as people, even if people, you know, can't afford college and can't afford healthcare and, you know, are, are massively in debt and all this stuff, as long as they have enough to eat and Netflix and, you know, and, and stuff like, you know, hot water and stuff like that, will you ever have enough people taking to the streets to commit violence for it to be a, a real civil war type situation? So what do you, what do you well, think about I, I... that?
1: <sighs> I mean, I, I did have a chat, like, I, I take your point, um, although on the other hand, civil wars often start in the richest countries, right? Like, wealth is not necessarily a, um, a guarantor of political security, right? Like, if you look at, um, Europe, or, um, indeed, America in the 19th century, which was far and away the richest country in the world by the mid-19th century. Um, or, you know, England in the 17th century, which was also the most advanced country in the world then. Um, like, you know, it, it, the, the the connection between inequality and revolution, it's only one part of this problem, right? Um, I would also say that, like, when I talk to my friends in New York who make very good salaries – and still, and struggle to get, um, insulin for their diabetic children. Um, the anger that I hear in their voices is very palpable, right? Like it's like, I, I think if I were to, I would say that healthcare would potentially be, um, you know, where it becomes essentially a necessary luxury. Uh, you know, that's, that's one source of friction. That's been a source of friction all over the world, but you know, this system is a complex cascading system. Like that's the model that I've used to describe in this book. So it's not one thing. It's, it's, it's an inequality. Wouldn't, I would say, wouldn't even be the dominant factor. Um, the dominant factor is probably anocracy and the fact that America is entering a stage where it's, in between autocracy and democracy and people don't regard their government as legitimate steward of the people's will, that's uh, the actual driver of this force. And then there's also the fact that America is about to become a majority-minority country by 2040. And, you know, everywhere in the world where that happens, it's certainly not limited to America. and It's not limited to white countries either. Um, that That tends to lead to large-scale amounts of political violence. So – you know, there are many factors feeding into this. Uh, the environment is certainly one of them. Inequality is certainly one of them. But hyper partisanship is one of them. But it's really the amalgam because they feed into each other. You know, bad, bad politics. Like, you know, the, the Manhattan seawall is a perfect example to me where you have, you know, you have these environmental cause, the environmental Disaster in Central America leads to large scale migration north. This leads to a crisis at the border, which helps get Trump elected. Trump gets elected and he k- kills the Manhattan seawall, leaving New York City, the greatest city in the world, totally exposed to the North Atlantic, which where, you know, these storms are coming, right? So that in it, see what you have is Environmental causes leading to political chaos, leading to bad decisions, leading to more environmental chaos. And it's that feedback loop that's really scary, right? It's not one thing. It's multiple things happening at the same time.
2: Could you – could we talk about the – you say that uh, in terms of science fiction, you say that there's this genre of future Civil War fantasy and that it's almost exclusively right wing. Could you talk about this this community of – Yeah, go ahead.
1: I mean, there, well, there, there's a large group of it. Um, you know, when you go to prepper conventions or you go to, uh, far right meetings like I've gone to, there, you, you see them there. Um, there's, uh, there's a, a series, what's it called? Rose of, Te- I think it's called the yellow Rose of Texas. It's a whole series about Texas separating and then going to war with the United States. And it's, um, it of course is m- not really realistic. So it has the Texas air force going to war with the American air force and so on. Um, then there's like just straight up Milsim, which is, you know, a, a, a a game, I guess you would call it, where people enact very complex scenarios of, um, of combat imagining a collapsed American state. And, you know, when you go to prepper conventions and you go to, um, and you go to these things, there's a, there's a high amount of fantasy in it, right? Like, like they have very specific visions of what a collapsed America would be. Like, you know, it, it's not, it's never nuclear attack, right? Like, it's never like nuclear winter that they're imagining, because of course, no one would survive that. They're, they imagine something very similar to, uh, the Wild West, where you're all on your own and you, uh, you need to garden for yourself and you need to arm yourself and you need to run away from groups of bandits, essentially. Um, so, like, the, the political far right, is very much engaged in fantasy. Sometimes it's a uh, literary fantasy, something like sometimes it's these actual books, but of course, you know, QAnon is a, and the conspiracy theories um, that emerge from it, you know, are, are, are fantasies, right? They're like, they're like paranoid fantasies of the first order.
2: Have, have you, th- these books you're talking about, have you read very many of them or like, I haven't read them? many of them.
1: I read a few of them. They're, Pretty tough going for me. Like I did not enjoy them. Like I I skimmed them basically. Um, at first I was like, "Well, are there any? Is there anything here I should think about?" But there never really was, right? Like it's all, you know, it's pretty predictable. It's like Texas, Texas hates America, America, you know, and 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 the and the version of America is um is is a grift. What's the really famous one that's, whose name escapes me? I read that one, which was about a group of people from India washing up on Europe's shores and causing, and it is a million seller. It's like a, it's like a paranoid fantasy of, um, mass migration from India taking over the Europe and like European reactions to it. Oh, it slipped, it slipped my mind now, which is really unacceptable, but I read that one cover to cover, um, more to get a, because a lot of the people that I was talking to had read it. And, um, I mean, it was a fantasy of racial replacement. Um, but I, so I read that one cover to cover, although it was terribly written too. Oh my God. <laughs> Tough going.
2: Yeah. Tough I, I'm going. not, I'm not familiar with that one, but I mean, it, I thought it was an interesting point you made that, you know, that, that you have these, cause I have like, at least in, in, in video games and movies and stuff, you have these sort of prepper, you know, after the bomb type, survivalist um, fiction. But then it's like, you're sort of like, well, either things would be probably either things would be so bad that everyone would die. Or things if it was survivable at all, why wouldn't civil order be restored? Relatively, you know, within a few years, say, you know, it's not like the government's just going to vanish, and then you're going to like live on your compound for the next for decades yeah. without anyone establishing any sort of order again.
1: Oh, they have all they have a whole stream of them. Like, what if the what if a solar flare knocks out all the power in the United States? That's a big, that's a big one. Um, you know, like you go and you go to a prepper convention and you talk to a lady who teaches you how to garden who's like, you know, you should grow amaranth in your and dandelions in your yard because the government doesn't take weeds. And it's like, well, I mean, it, like, I think the government could actually figure out if they wanted to take your weeds, they would probably figure out how to take them, you know, like, but, it, you know, it's all, it's all, it's all kind of a, a of a, of a dream, right? Like, it's not, it, it it it's not really particularly connected with any reality. It's just, it's just a filter through their own uh, vision of the chaos of their own moment. You know, I, I, I guess that's what-, what all fantasy is.
2: Well, because just in history, I mean, you rarely had a case of, like, oh, you just were a peasant and you were left alone. I mean, there's always some lord coming to exert authority over you, even regardless of what level of technology or,
1: or whatever there is. Right. Um, yeah, like, well, I mean, the thing that's funny is that they – well, they're preparing for this civil war. And, you know, I, I think it's also important to say that, like, you know, it's – it's tempting to think of these people as like cranks and so on, but like they actually have a lot of democratically elected representatives, right? Who believe that, or, you know, like the, the, the governor of Kentucky who thought, who openly said, like, if Hillary Clinton is elected, we're going ha- to, we're going to have the blood of patriots is going to have to be spilled, right? You have, you, you definitely have a, um, a widespread, um, an- like the anti-government patriot world is a world steeped in in various fantasies and and also steeped in um esoteric knowledge right like knowledge is only worth something to them if the authorities think it's untrue that was the thing that took me a long time to figure out was like i was like well why are why do these things why do they keep believing these things that are like if you bring up any kind of like fact it's it's the anything any fact that you bring up is just simply evidence of the authorities covering up the real truth. So any, any evidence that you bring to bear, you know, has the exact opposite reaction of what you would think because to them, what they want is for knowledge to be exceptional and for them to be in possession of it. Right. And, and for no one else to possess it except them and their little crew. Right. And so that, that creates a kind of different. I, I mean, it sounds fancier than it is, but it's like a different epistemological reality. Right? Um, uh, where, uh, where the, where the pleasure of secrets is being revealed. And of course, you know, they also believe all this stuff about you know, the the flags in the U.S. courts have gold trim on them, which are naval flags, which means that, you know, you're at sea when you're in European, when you're in an American court. So that means the law of the sea applies. So that means you don't have to pay your taxes and they have no authority over you. And they also believe that the U.S. government has inbo- been involved in large scale um, allegiances with intergalactic lizard people. Right. Like. They they go into real fantasy quite quickly, and these are not small groups of people. These are hundreds of thousands of people who who believe this stuff, and some of them, as I said, are elected. So it it it, it is a kind of what's the word like uh, when you're on acid? Uh, like it's a
2: uh
1: um, Yeah, it's a hallucinatory reality. Like it's and that's why you have people going to Comet Peace in Washington and shooting the place up because they think that, you know, there are children in the basement. Right. So there's there's definite there's definitely a widespread fantastical element here.
2: Yeah. uh, Talk about the map, because this is what really made me want to read the book, is I saw that you had this map of the divided future United States.
1: Well, you know, I mean, at the end of the book, I kind of look for solutions and I actually think secession is one of the more. Reasonable solutions for the united states at this point. I think like when the when countries get to the when 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 marriages get to the state that America's in like you just sit the kids down and say it's time for a divorce, right? Like that's what that's the civilized solution. Now, secession in America is very, very difficult, not impossible, but certainly unconstitutional and also requires a huge amount of international negotiation. But that said, I mean, I really do think that, you know, we're now reaching a point, particularly with the incipient abortion decision, where you're going to have two, you know, pretty much two different countries anyway. Um, and, you know, the, and I divided it into four, um, which which seemed to me reasonable. But, you know, that's entirely a projection, right? Like, that's just me saying what, you know, taking the data of where these states, states tend to vote. And, and what kind of systems they tend to use and carving them up. But, you know, I think the, the larger point is like there might well come a point where California would be better on its own. Texas would be better on its own. They don't share a lot of in, in, in any way, um, although they're both perfectly functional places with that would have a lot going for them as as separate countries. Um, you know, it, it's probably time to think about a, a civilized divorce at this point.
2: Let me just explain. So, so you, you have it. you have the West Coast is its own country. Texas is its own country. New England and the Great Lakes are its own country. And then basically everything else is its
1: own country. Midwest and the South. The Midwest and the South share a lot of psychometric data. And they're also, um, like they have, it's not just political differences, it's also social differences like corporal punishment in schools, uh, abortion access is one of them, proximity, number of people you know who are gay, who are married, uh, there's a whole ton of social um, divisions between these, between red and blue America that are, that are quite noticeable. Like they, they, it's, it's, you know, it's not it's when you look at the data, it's like, wow, there really is a line here between former slave states and, and former free states. Uh, so, yeah, that's that w- that was basically the approach I took.
2: All right. So uh, we're almost out of time. So maybe my last question here, I was just curious, just I, I just saw in the course of promoting this book, you've been going around and talking to like Andrew Yang, Marianne Williamson, Tim Poole, yeah, yeah. Mike Pesca, all these different podcasts. I was just curious what your experience has been uh, talking to these podcasters.
1: I love I love I've loved all of them. I certainly love talking to Andrew, who I get along with very, very well. Great guy. Um like uh I mean I did get a full tour of American media, so I was on Tim Pool, which was like a different you know, just a different media universe than anyone I'd ever seen before, although I quite like the guy. Um and then, you know, on Newsmax where, you know, they at one point somebody asked me like, Maybe a civil war is a good idea and I was like, Well, you know, 3% of the American population died in the first one. Like, 25% of South Carolina's male population died. Like, I, I, I think there has to be a better way than, than Civil War. Like, I don't think it's a good idea at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, I did, I, I did get, I did get quite a tour of American, uh, media for, uh, in this book. And it was, it was fascinating for sure.
2: I don't know if you can talk about this, but I, I Tim Pool, he has, like, a skate park in his backyard or something. I don't know if you— In his basement.
1: I was on it. His, I took it a picture basement, of it and put it on—it's in his basement, yeah. He's got a very cool setup. I mean, he's got yeah. the—well, it's, it's in West Virginia, and it's huge and goes on forever. And he's got his own chickens and stuff, <laughs> and yeah, yeah.
2: Someday, someday I'm going to have a skate park in my— He has a staff that's, of 50,
1: the they told me. They have a staff of fifty. They told me, which you know, that's a, that's a new life goal. I think for <laughs> all of us, I never thought a journalist could have a staff of fifty. I like, that was that's that's a that, I, I never even thought of that as a goal. You know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, all right, so we should start wrapping things up. So, do you have any other uh, any other final thoughts or any other projects you want to let people know about?
1: Well, I'm doing a lot of work on uh AI fiction that I'm like that might be of interest to you. Like I've written I've been I actually wrote one for Wired like 4 years ago where I used an algorithm to write fiction and I've got some I'm using um some natural language processing to write write stories these days and I'm pretty I'm getting pretty into that and I'm thinking that's pretty that's pretty fascinating to me. And uh I have a story in LA Review of Book uh, LA Review of Books that's 17.1% computer written. Um, which I, I I'm pretty I'm getting pretty into that. I think it's an interesting new form, and uh, I'm I'm starting to get really excited about it.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll have to go check those out. Definitely. Yeah, I'm just curious to see. Yeah, you know? yeah, how it comes out because having actually read you know two books by you that were not written with AI, it'll be curious
1: to see. It's not written out. by. L- yeah, here I'll send you the I'll send you the the, uh, the one I wrote for the LA Review of Books because that one's harder to find. I'll just send it to you right now.
2: Okay. Cool. Um, But, yeah, yeah, so why don't we uh, wrap things up there? So we've been speaking with Stephen Marsh about his books The Hunger of the Wolf and The Next Civil War. So, Stephen, thank
1: you so much for joining us. Thanks very much. Really appreciate it, man. This was great.
0: And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Stephen Marsh for joining us on the show. I also want to thank W.C. Collier for sponsoring today's show. Check out his military thriller, Outsiders, over at WCCollier.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next
1: time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com.
0: To learn more about your host, visit davidbarrkirtley.com.
1: Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends.